From Toronto, Canada, The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Hey, welcome to the Audio Imaginarium, and it is good to be back. The entire Serrett clan, well, four of us anyway, were felled by that nasty stomach flu that's been uh, going around. Uh, we, we were hit pretty hard last week. It started with uh, my little guy, North, uh, who had what I describe the 18-hour flu. I don't know. This is a new variety. Maybe it's the metric system, but it used to be the 24. He got the 18-hour flu. And, uh, of course, the little ones, they bounce back, right? Then Zach, a couple days later, his was 24 hours. And then the mighty Aphrodite, within a half hour of Zach going down, she went down, but for about 36 hours. And I think, I think you see where this is going. It's sort of ratcheting up. Then it was my turn last Saturday. And, of course, uh, I was not here on uh, for the program. Uh, my turn last Saturday at about 6 a.m. And I was not back on my feet in 100% for at least 48 hours. Uh, I mentioned uh, this briefly on Coast to Coast the other night when I was hosting. We had a small fire in the condo. A week ago Friday, it's been quite a week, or a couple of weeks. That's right, a little fire. Uh, it was close. It could have been much, much worse. Um, but it, we had an unattended pot of, uh, of wax on the kitchen stove. Complete rookie mistake? Absolutely. However, uh, the mighty Aphrodite and I both received pretty substantial burns to our hands. Second degree uh, burns, I would say. And um, maybe a little later, I can, I'll show it uh, to you on the webcam. Oh, what the heck. Can you see that? I don't know. It doesn't look too bad now. It's much, much better than it was. I know it's not pretty. Anyway, uh, here's the thing, though. A few weeks prior to that, we were down in Niagara Falls, and I wanted to visit Bruce McBurney, who's an inventor down there. He's been on this program talking about the 100-mile-per-gallon engine. He has a whole slew of inventions, but he also makes his own colloidal silver. And he's been on this program talking about colloidal silver, and I'm not going to make any claims about what colloidal silver can do uh, definitively. I'll just offer up, offer up my own anecdotal evidence. So uh, immediately, so we bought some colloidal silver and uh, brought it back. And thankfully we did because uh, immediately after putting the fire out at the condo, we remembered the colloidal silver because it's supposed to be good for cuts and abrasions and burns. So we sprayed it all over our hands and then continued to do so every couple of hours. And uh, as bad as this looks now, I mean, it was uh, t- ten times worse uh, looking a few days ago. And uh, But I have not had one moment of pain or even mild discomfort. And I remember as a kid getting little tiny burns, you know, touching the stove on the corner of a finger and excruciating, right? You've had burns. You know how, you know how painful they can be. And I'm looking at this. This, my hand should be on fire. Uh, but again... I attribute it to the colloidal silver. So, everything Bruce McBurney says about it, and again, I'm not making claims. I'm just, uh, that that it'll do this or that. I'm just telling you what happened to me. That's my story. I mean, uh, the webcam, of course, is up and running because we are doing another HOA hangout on air tonight. And if you want to watch the live stream while listening to the show, Ain't Technology Grand, uh, you can go to my Twitter feed, at Richard Serrett, at Richard Serrett. And while you're there, Follow and say hi. Uh, click on the YouTube link. It's at the top of the feed. If you miss the live stream, you can also watch it later on our YouTube channel, which is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. And uh, there's uh, there's an archive there. 
be listening at 11.30. Listening at the bottom of the hour for your chance to win a pair of free passes to my live stage event Sunday, April the 26th at the Regent Theatre in Oshawa. It's fast approaching. Uh, speakers include JFK assassination researcher Nelson Thal, who will be unpacking the Zapruder film, frame by frame. The Lost and Found Tribes of Israel with Miss Jane Steele. We'll have an exact replica of the Shroud of Turin there. Remote viewing with Canada's Edgar Casey, Rosemary Ellen Guiley with a live demonstration of spirit communication. Electronic harassment expert Dr. John uh, Hall. Dr. John Hall, flying up from San Antonio. Ali Siadatan, who's been on this program a number of times as a producer, documentary film producer, of the critically acclaimed doc, UFOs, Angels, and Gods. He'll be making a presentation and much more. For more information, visit followthetruth.tv, followthetruth.tv, or you can just call the box office at the Regent Theatre and order your tickets and do it uh, quickly if you can. 905-721-3399. Follow the truth. TV. Uh, oh, and one more little housekeeping note. Always uh, happy to make this sort of announcement. We have a new affiliate, WEZS AM in Boston, or as they say, north or south of the 48th, uh, W49th parallel, I should say, WEZS AM in Boston. Uh, for a complete list of our affiliates, just go to richardserrett.com and under the For Everyone menu, just scroll down, you'll see affiliates and there you'll see our growing list. So thanks WEZSAM in Boston for adding us to your weekly schedule. Uh, so I mentioned the, the fire on Friday and as it happens, the mighty Aphrodite and I were planning that night to go see, we'd head down the road to the Cineplex and see uh, the imitation game. Uh, which we have not seen yet. And um, uh, I was, I've been, been meaning to see this movie for, uh, for quite a while, obviously, and if you're not familiar with it, this is the movie uh, that, that talks about the, the formation, really, of the British intelligence agency, MI6, which began in 1939, and they recruit this Cambridge mathematics uh, uh, genius, Alan Turing, who is played by Benedict Cumberbatch br- brilliantly, and they hire him to, to, to uh, crack these Nazi codes, including the Enigma code, which at that time cryptanalysts had thought were unbreakable. Earlier on, they had, uh, they had some success uh, cracking some of the Enigma codes, and then the Germans kept creating even more complex Enigma codes. And uh, I mention all of this because, as it turns out, Alan Turing has a rather interesting, uh, but up until now, unknown connection to one of Canada's most infamous military operations, the Dieppe Raid of August 1942, also known as the Battle of Dieppe, Operation Rudder, and uh, later it became known as Operation Jubilee, and that was, of course, the Allied attack on the German-occupied port of uh, Dieppe during the Second World War. 6,000 infantrymen, predominantly Canadian, were supported by a Canadian armored regiment and a strong force of Royal Navy and smaller Royal Air Force Landing contingents, 5,000 Canadians, 1,000 British troops, even 50 Americans, uh, army rangers, were involved. Militarily, it was a disaster. A total of 3,367 of the uh, just over 6,000 men, almost 60%, who made it ashore were either killed, wounded, or captured. 
And of course, the Royal Air Force failed to lure the Luftwaffe into open battle, and they lost 106 aircraft. Many of the veterans of Dieppe that survived went, went to their graves wondering, what the hell was the point of that? Now, this tragic chapter in military history has been rewritten, and many of the mysteries and questions surrounding Dieppe have been answered in a relatively new book called One Day in August, The Untold Story Behind Canada's Tragedy at Dieppe. And the author, David O'Keefe, joins us from his office in Montreal. David, welcome to The Conspiracy Show. How are you? Well, good evening. Thanks for having me. I'm fine. How are you? Very well, and thanks to uh, our, our, thanks for joining us on our, our hangout as well. My pleasure. First of all, uh, set the stage. I, mean, I mentioned briefly uh, the events of, of um, August nineteenth, nineteen forty-two, and I, I gave some some data there. But but set the stage for for uh, for us. What was sort of the official uh, rationale for that operation? Well, there were several, I guess, over the years. Number one was that they were attempting to test German defenses. Of course, Nazi Germany was at the the height of its power. I mean, it ran all of Europe from, you know, right right from the English Channel all the way to Moscow, and then it extended as far north as the Arctic Circle and down to North Africa. I mean, this was the apex of Hitler's power. So in this particular point in the summer of 1942, the Allies, and rather for what seemed to be mysterious reasons, put on a raid to test German defenses. At least that was the standard notion. And then later on, there were various other notions after this turned into a disaster that were um, passed along as the reasons for it. And one of them being placating Stalin's calls for a second front. Another one was to seek out an air battle. And there were some that even suggested that this might have actually been a sacrificial mission from the get-go to show the Americans the futility of trying to launch a second front in 1942. You, you begin the uh, the book, uh, One Day in August, mm. the untold story behind Canada's tragedy at Dieppe, from a, uh, with a quote from, an, uh, from a German interrog- interrogator mm-hmm. uh, who interrogated a young Canadian by the name of Major Brian McCool. Uh, uh, talk to us about that, that uh, inter- interrogator. Well, this is one of the things that I think permeates the historiography or the history of the Dieppe operation was this essential question, what was this all about? And I think his um, answer on that particular day pretty much summed up the frustration for almost every man who was there, with the exception of those who would have been in the know, which would have been just a tiny handful of what Dieppe was all about. And that frustration has something that, you know, something really that's lasted for almost 70 years. And the, and the interrogator asked McCool, mm-hmm. you know, "What were you trying to do?" Right, because this operation was this invasion was so large in scope, but but so essentially poorly prepared. What were you guys thinking? Well, that was the whole thing. I mean, even the Germans couldn't figure this out. Um, this was not an invasion like you saw two years later in Normandy. This was a one-day raid, or as Churchill would call it, a butcher-and-bolt operation. In other words, get in for one day, get out. But unlike the others that had been attempted so far up in Norway or even on the west coast of France, this one was much larger in scope. Usually the other ones were smaller, maybe 500 to 1,000 men. But this one came in significant force, not anywhere close to what they had in Normandy a couple of years later, but too big, if you will, to really be understood in the contemporary realm. 
David O'Keefe joins us from Montreal. The book is One Day in August, the untold story behind Canada's tragedy at Dieppe. Now, David, I don't know how old you are. Uh, I mean, you are an historian. Um, But, I mean, for those of a certain age out there listening who, uh, for them, you know, the Second World War is... uh, not even a distant memory. It's it's uh, something that maybe their great grandparents have told them about. Mm. Why does someone uh, of your age, of your generation, start poking around in this chapter of our history? Well, I guess for me, I mean, my my father was a World War II vet. My grandfather fought in World War One, and I had plenty of friends who, you know, had their grandparents there, and even my students now have had their grandparents or great grandparents at Dieppe. And I think for me as a, as a military historian, I mean, Dieppe is one of the greatest mysteries of the Second World War, one of the greatest tragedies, and certainly for Canadians. I mean, this was a, you know, um, a blotch, if you will, on Canadian military history for so many years. It certainly was. David, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to jump in. We'll take a time out. Yep. We've got that music percolating up on the other side. We'll explore further. One day in August, the untold story behind Canada's tragedy at Dieppe, David O'Keefe. Here on The Conspiracy Show, we'll learn about the connection to Alan Turing, the Enigma Code, and even James Bond. Back with more of The Conspiracy Show, my name is Richard Serrett. Stay with us. Where there's smoke, there's The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Welcome back. My guest, David O'Keefe in Montreal, has rewritten history. Uh, The 1942 Allied raid on Dieppe. One of Canada's worst military disasters after less than a day's fighting, 3,367 Canadian men, over two-thirds of the Canadians participating in the operation were killed, wounded, captured, or listed as missing. The purpose of the raid has remained a mystery for over 70 years. Quote, this was too big for a raid and too small for invasion, end quote, said a puzzled German interrogator to a captured prisoner. What were you trying to do? The prisoner's response is quoted near the beginning of uh, David's One Day in August. He said, if you could tell me, I would be very grateful. David O'Keefe, we'll we'll get into how you connected the Dieppe raid uh, to the Allies, the Allied effort to to crack the Enigma Code, um, you know, over the next uh, few few moments here. Mm -hmm. But but where where does this trail begin for you? When did you start to make these connections? Well, I guess it started about, uh, would have been almost 20 years ago, actually, this month, when I made my first discovery. And that was the document that started this whole journey. I was um, working in the British archives and came across a report that was recently released at that time, and it had formerly been ultra-classified, in other words, above top secret. And the report had to do with the the exploits of a very mysterious commando unit called the 30th Assault Unit or 30th Commando. And um, this was striking because this was the first time I'd ever heard of this unit. And let alone in this document, it lists what they were looking for in 1942, which was anything and everything that would have helped the, co- the uh, code breakers at Bletchley Park like Alan Turing. And also what really got me was in the fourth paragraph, one throwaway line that started the entire journey. As regards capture, the party at Dieppe did not reach its objective. 
And then suddenly I realized, well, I have one, you know, a document here about a commando unit raised specifically to pinch or steal anything to do with the Enigma machine. Now it's connected to Dieppe, one of Canada's greatest disasters, one of Canada's greatest tragedies, and also one of World War II's greatest mysteries. So that's really how it all began. I should mention that the that top secret document recently declassified that you just mentioned, uh, that's up on our, uh, visible on our, our HOA, our Hangout on Air, for those of you mm. uh, watching the live stream, or if you're not and you'd like to uh, to check it out, uh, you can see it later on the uh, the archived HOA at our YouTube channel, The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. David O'Keefe here with us, one day in August. Uh, the Enigma machine, mm. and of course this is very timely, uh, with obviously the uh, the imitation game coming out, uh, yet no mention. I haven't seen the movie yet, though. I'm, I'm guessing no mention, obviously, of um, the role of uh, of Dieppe or the Canadian the uh, Canadian military effort no, in this pinch operation. Um, perhaps you know, had this document come to uh, to light a few years ago, maybe it would have made it into the movie. Uh, well, the, 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 you call it a pinch operation. Yeah. Explain what a pinch operation okay. is. A pinch operation, it comes from the British slang, pinch, to mean to steal or swipe. And the idea was to get into uh, an enemy headquarters, an enemy ship, anywhere where you could come into contact with the kind of material you needed that would help the codebreakers at Bletchley. So not only were you interested in the machine itself, the Enigma machine, which in some cases was almost secondary, what you really needed were the instruction manuals, for lack of a better term. All the sheets, the coding, the settings, um, how to put the machine together on a particular day, how to set the particular key, kind of like stealing a whole list of PIN numbers for bank cards, if you would. In other words, it's one thing to have the card, but unless you know what the PIN number is, you won't be able to use it. And that's what they were looking for. Okay, so once you saw a reference to this pinch operation connected to Dieppe, what was your next stage in unraveling this seven-decade-old mystery? Well, at first, you can imagine. I mean, it seemed to be, you know, rather outlandish when I thought of it. I mean, first of all, okay, this is fascinating. Um, this must be nothing more than a caboose on a train that was already leaving for Dieppe. But there was something in the back of the um, back of the uh, uh, report that really caught my imagination, and it said, "No raid should be laid on." specifically for signals intelligence or pinch operations, unless it's big enough to presuppose normal operational uh, objectives. In other words, if you are going to pinch, you have to make sure that it is done within a larger operation to make sure that your enemy, in this case the Germans, would never catch on. Is there anyone... Uh, associated with the the, the planning, uh, the operation of of Dieppe that's still alive? Well, unfortunately, at that level, no. Not in the planning level. Everybody, as far as I know, has passed on. I was fortunate enough to actually find the last of... 30th assault unit who was left alive and he still is today unfortunately he's he's succumbed to alzheimer's now um and that was paul mcgraw who after i continued or started my research years later i actually approached the british navy and i approached the naval historical branch and basically you know told him what i had found and you have to understand that this unfolds almost like a jigsaw puzzle in other words there's so many pieces per year that are released 
So it took about a oh, good 14 to 15 years before I felt comfortable enough to actually approach the authorities and say, hey, look, this is what I'm working on. This is what the evidence shows. This is what it suggests. Would you be able to throw any light on it? And they basically took a look at it and said, you know what? I think you might be on to something here. And one of the historians left the room, came back in two minutes, and gave me a name and a number and said, look, you better talk to this guy. And I said, why? And he said, well, he's the last of the commandos that were at Dieppe. So sure enough, within a, you know, about a week, I was on a plane to Scotland, and we interviewed Paul McGraw, who was one of the last ones there. But unfortunately, because of the march of time, uh, the men who were responsible for planning, like Lord Louis Mountbatten or Hughes Hallett or even you know, Ham Roberts, the Canadian uh, general, they've all passed away many years ago. So how many uh, soldiers, uh, commandos, people that came ashore on April 19, 1942, were in the know about the true uh, purpose of the operation? Well, it's very hard to say that anybody who actually came ashore would know the overall purpose. Remember, in, in, in the way military security is done, it's all stovepiped. It's all done on the need to know. So you're told as much as you need to know to get your immediate objective done. Compartmentalization. You got it. This is yeah. how big so, secrets I mean, are if, kept quiet. Know, if a commando storms ashore and grabs the material, he would know that this is important. He may not know why it's important, but he knows that this is what he's after, and it, they have to get it out quickly. Now, would he have known about Bletchley Park? Would he have known about cryptography? No, not at all, because that would have been the idea of compartmentalization for security purposes. And are there any clues in any of the documents that you've uncovered um, relating to the, the existence of this material at this port, Dieppe? Well, the interesting part is when you lay on a raid like this, um, you basically go on the intelligence estimates you have. And I was able to find the estimate for what they suspected was German naval headquarters in the harbor. Now, there were two big targets they were after. One were the trawlers, the ships that would have used the Enigma machine and would have had all their code books. But those code books would have been good for the current month and maybe the next month. The real pot of gold in Dieppe was the naval, uh, naval headquarters, because not only would you have the current month and next month, but you would have had a safe containing all the code material for the next six months, maybe a year, all ready to be issued to the ships. So you can see what they were attempting to do. Now, in this particular case, they located it in a mysterious hotel in the harbor called the Hotel Modern. And this is what they suspected, British intelligence uh, suspected, was the pot of gold, if you will. Why did they fail? Well, that goes down to the entire operation. I mean, one of the most remarkable moments in this entire research journey was when I found out, um, after pressing the government code and cipher school to release the material, they finally agreed to release what would be called the policy papers to show that these pinch operations were not just these ad hoc units thrown on to operations, but they actually had three categories of these. In other words, there was a doctrine for this, a playbook. And so they would have what they call a pinch by chance. In other words, in the middle of a battle, you stumble across something, you find it fascinating, you pick it up, you bring it back. Obviously, Dieppe wasn't that. And then there was two other categories, a pinch by opportunity, 
In other words, we have a battle that's going to be raging or an operation that's going to be laid on, and it looks like we're going to come into contact with what we're after or what we're going for, so you better be prepared. And the third one was actually a pinch by design. In other words, we have a huge problem, we need to solve it, and let's launch a raid or another type of operation to make sure we get what we're coming for. So Dieppe was pinch by design. That is what Dieppe turns out to be, a pinch by design. Explain the importance uh, of breaking the Enigma code mm. in terms of tracking the movements of these, you know, these deadly U-boats. Oh, yeah. Well, I mean, you have to understand, I mean, as we know, information is power. And in World War II, the lifeblood of the entire Allied war effort was the control of the sea lanes, particularly when the United States of America comes into the war in December of 1941. I mean, uh, you know, most of you know, most of Churchill's cabinet is jumping up and down when the United States comes in at first because they realize that the, you know, the economic potential that the United States has. The only problem is it's not going to help if the tanks, the guns, the manpower, the raw materials are stuck in the United States. You've got to get them across U-boat infested waters. And one of the ways of doing this in an economic way and relatively safe way is to make sure that you can break into the German codes and ciphers, which let you know it, to a relative degree of certainty where they're located, what their strengths, their weaknesses, their hopes, their dreams, their desires, etc. are. And as a result, you can reroute your convoys away from danger. Or in some cases, if you've developed the capability, you can run right into the U-boats and try to hunt them down and kill them. But in 1942, just after the U.S. Uh, enters the war, it's something what you alluded to earlier. The Allies had had great success breaking into the Enigma in 1941, thanks to Turing and thanks to earlier pinch raids. And so the Germans started to catch on a little bit. And now they introduced a new form of Enigma machine, which was basically a bastardized version of the three-rotor, and this was called a four-rotor machine. And instantly, um, starting in February 1942, the Operational Intelligence Center and Bletchley Park were completely blacked out. So in other words, suddenly they only had minuscule information about the whereabouts of U-boats. Yeah, they were, they were roaming around unimpeded. Yes, essentially. And I mean, you have sinkings that are going through the roof, particularly off the American coast in uh, the first few months of 1942. My uncle was, uh, was, uh, was uh, on, the, on the corvettes that were escorting a lot of these Allied merchant vessels. Yeah, they were. I mean, the Canadians were running this operation out of Halifax, and then, of course, the Americans were sort of stumbling through the first couple of months because they didn't adopt the convoy system until later in 1942. And meanwhile, the the British now are fighting against the Japanese. They suddenly have, you know, the Germans they have to watch out for all through the Atlantic, and now the Japanese in the Indian Ocean. So one of the greatest force multipliers that they had was what they would call ultra this classified process of breaking into enemy communications and then exploiting it. So in other words, it's kind of like reading, you know, four or five cards in your opponent's poker hand, if it will. Uh, we're, we're coming up on, a, on another break. When we come back, I, I want to talk about some of the other colorful personalities mm. that, were, uh, that <laughs> figure in your book. Uh, obviously, you mentioned Lord Louis Mountbatten, uh, Sir Winston Churchill, of course. Uh, Alan Turing, who we, we mentioned earlier, uh, played uh, by... Mr. Cumberbatch in uh, the imitation game, uh, but the most surprising character of, character of all, and that is the author of the James Bond mm. franchise, 
Ian Fleming. We'll uh, find out about his connection to the untold story behind Canada's tragedy at Dieppe. The author of One Day in August, David O'Keefe, stays with us live from Montreal, back with more of The Conspiracy Show, your chance to win tickets to follow the truth, too, coming up in mere moments. Stay with us. Big Brother is listening, and so are you, to The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serra. Welcome back. Next week on the program, Michael Horn, who is the American media representative of UFO ET contactee, Billy Meyer. And uh, Michael will be here to talk about, among other things, his uh, new documentary. It's called, And Did They Listen? Back to my conversation with uh, David O'Keefe, author of One Day in August, The Untold Story Behind Canada's Tragedy at Dieppe, in just a moment. David, you sifted through something like 150,000 pages of documents to unravel this mystery. And again, the thesis here is that the Dieppe raid, although botched as it was and tragic as it was, it was an attempt to seize the Enigma Code. At what point did the name Ian Fleming... Of course, the author of the James Bond books. What At what point did uh, you stumble onto Ian Fleming's connection to this? Well, it's kind of remarkable. I guess you could say Fleming's connection was right there from the start because this 30th assault unit that I mentioned to you earlier um, was actually raised by Ian Fleming, which is one of the reasons why I kind of hesitated at the beginning back in 1995 to take it any further, simply because Ian Fleming, uh, for most historians, is, um, well, a minefield, to be honest with you. It's kind of like walking into a minefield when you, when you deal with a character as famous as Fleming. Because, you know, for so many years, we know Fleming through Bond, and a lot of times people mistake uh, mistake him for being Bond. And I think that was one of the big challenges I had as a historian right away, was to try to figure out who the real Fleming was from 39 to 42. He's an enigma in and of himself. You got it, without a doubt. Um, he was a fascinating character. And I mean, a lot of people believe he was an agent like Bond in the field. There was no truth to that whatsoever. Oh, really? Interesting. Yeah, well, that was the fascinating thing. I mean, essentially, he was the, well, the way that some people in the British, uh, in British government, like to portray him, is nothing more than a faceless bureaucrat, an opportunist who ended up, you know, going out to sea on the Dieppe raid to basically act as an observer um, to watch his new commando unit go into action. And when I was looking, you know, doing my research on him, I realized he was anything but. He certainly wasn't a superhero, but at the same time, he was anything but a faceless bureaucrat. He was actually the personal assistant to the director of naval intelligence, John Godfrey, which means he was his hatchet man, his go-to guy, his fixer. Anything that needed to be done that may have been ruthless or Machiavellian or required a certain panache and creative ability, that was Fleming's, you know, bailiwick. In other words, Fleming wasn't beyond treating humans as cannon fodder. Well, yes. I mean, he would. I mean, he was notorious for that. I mean, it was part of his makeup. I mean, he, in a certain situation, he would see the objective, and it really wouldn't matter how he got, you know, got it done. And that is something that comes through in pretty much all his dealings in the Second World War. I mean, this is a guy who had his finger in the pie of almost every intelligence operation going on, not just with naval intelligence, but with MI5, MI6, um, you know, at Bletchley Park. He was responsible for the pinch portfolio for the first couple of years of the war. At any point, David, did the trail lead back to, I mentioned um, my, my Follow the Truth event happening in Oshawa. Did, did, at mm. any point did your trail... 
uh, lead back to Camp X, the infamous Camp X in Oshawa. Well, not really in a direct way. Indirectly, it was all part of the same circuit. Of course, you know they had the Hydra operation that was at Camp X, and this was relaying the fruits of Ultra, in other words, the cryptography right around the world. And then this was an incredible network. I mean, people tend to forget that by the end of the war, there were about 10,000 people involved with Bletchley Park and the SIGINT operations just in Great Britain. And then you add the Americans and the Canadians involved, and you've got a massive factory of intelligence and an incredible network. And the the camp that you refer to, Camp X in uh, Oshawa, had a major relay signal station. And as far as we know, there's no evidence to suggest they were doing any cryptography there. But at the same time, they were relaying the essential information to and from the front. Although it is, it is. can you confirm that Fleming did spend some time at Camp X? Well, unfortunately, I can't. Hmm. Uh, as a matter of fact, we know he was in North America. There's rumors that he was at the camp. And those rumors tend to, again, I think, transcend into the bond mystique. Yes, in words, indeed. He trained there. He may have, you know killed somebody there or failed to kill somebody there. But there's no evidence in 150,000 pages that I went through to suggest he was ever there to train, let All alone right. there. There's your assignment for your portfolio. next book, David. There's your assignment for your next book. <laughs> Liz, we'll take a time out. We'll come back. I want to find out more about Rear Admiral John Godfrey, no sometimes cited as the inspiration for 007's Boss M, played with great panache by Judy Dench. <laughs> we'll come back and continue to discuss... David O'Keefe's book, One Day in August, right here on The Conspiracy Show. Stay with us. If you want to register your own .com and are looking for a responsible, sustainable, high-quality domain name registrar, then look at Paranick.com. Paranick includes a ton of value-added services, like a parking page, who is, privacy, dynamic DNS, and much more, with every domain name registration at no extra cost. Not many companies can say that. So give Paranick.com a try today. P-A-I-R-N-I-C.com. Shaking the world and seeing what falls. This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. David O'Keefe joins us live from Montreal, remains with us a few moments yet, talking about One Day in August, the untold story behind Canada's tragedy at Dieppe. And again, if you're just joining us, uh, this is really rewriting history, because although Dieppe was a military disaster, uh, ended in a tragic loss of life, staggering loss of life, gave the Nazis a propaganda victory, uh, the, the real purpose of that the real purpose of that uh, operation was, in fact, the retrieval of the Enigma Code, uh, one of many attempts at retrieving the Enigma Code. Uh, so back to Rear Admiral John Godfrey, again, sometimes cited as the inspiration for 007's Boss M in the James Bond series. Uh, this was not his sort of first uh, crazy cockamamie scheme, was it? Well, no. As a matter of fact, uh, you know, uh, Godfrey, who was a fascinating character to start with, you know, career Royal Navy officer, and then in 1939 became director of naval intelligence. There was a lot to him that um, he, he was basically trying to rebuild an intelligence empire that had been taken away from naval intelligence at the end of World War One, And part of it, um, or in an attempt to do this, was indeed to make sure that he kept his finger and his pulse on Enigma, cryptography. 
But there were a lot of other schemes that went on starting from 1939 onward, in particular 1940, where both Fleming and Godfrey um, came up with, and particularly Fleming, came up with this operation called Ruthless, which was really remarkable. And uh, for most historians, um, they always thought that this was just simply a flight of Fleming fancy, if you will, uh, that never got off the ground. And the idea was to, very simply, was to dress up a, a commando unit like a German bomber crew, fly a captured German bomber over the English Channel, find a ship that may be carrying the kind of material that they needed, fake an emergency landing, and then pull a Trojan horseplay. And so, in other words, when the rescue craft comes out, jump on, seize the crew, seize the machine that you're looking for, or the code books, and then kill the crew to cover it up. And the remarkable part was that when I started this journey and came across this, I assumed, like most of the Fleming biographers, that this never came to fruition. But in reality, it did, and it came off twice, but it came up empty twice. But that's a fascinating um, indictment, if you will, or perhaps uh, an example of the lengths that naval intelligence, not just naval intelligence, but also the, Ar the Air Force and the Navy were willing to go to to get this kind of material. Was Godfrey and, by extension, Ian Fleming, were they a little bit the bumblers? Well, I think all this was new. I mean, they are experimenting. I mean, right from 1939 up until 42, when Dieppe happens, they're essentially experimenting with ways of capturing this material and getting away with it. And so as a result, they're pushing the envelope, without a doubt. And one of the big problems is leading up to Dieppe, they never have a setback, or at least not a major setback, to, to check them. So there's a growing arrogance, a growing hubris, a victory disease that's setting in. In other words, look, we've been successful doing this up in Norway. Why not take it you know, across the channel? Why not enlarge it? So not only do we have commando units you know, hitting the main harbor, but now they're adding extra commando units on the wings to take out uh, you know, two naval batteries and perhaps find some stuff there. So they're getting, um, yeah, part of it is, I guess you could say, bumbling, but within the, the context of experimenting and pushing the envelope. Had Dieppe uh, gone off as planned, had mm -hmm. it had been a success, and the retrieval of the encrypted material were it, were it successful, what would it have meant to the war? Effort. What's, I mean, well, would it have ended quickly? Well, that's a good question. I mean, that's an incredible counterfactual question. The what if? Um, most historians believe that having something like Ultra, the ability to read your enemy's communications, shaved at least a year, if not two years, off the entire war and saved millions of lives. Um, had Dieppe actually come off, it would have given them probably an extra four to five months. In other words, it was only in late December when they start, when they actually broke through uh, the four rotor enigma. And if they would have done that in August, then I, it would be very difficult to calculate. But without a doubt, the war likely would have been shortened. And would have saved perhaps hundreds of thousands of lives. Could very well. Why... Why keep this a secret for so long? I mean, especially for veterans and their families, who many of them who went to their grave thinking it was pointless. Well, that's the, that's the tragedy. That's one of that's 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 a huge tragedy. It is. It is, and I think there's a couple of reasons. 
First of all, Ultra, when these men like Fleming, Godfrey, Mountbatten were indoctrinated, in other words, they were read the riot act of what to do, what not to do, and signed the Official Secrets Act, they were told that this would never be revealed. And essentially, the existence of Ultra remained classified until the late 1970s, when finally the British admitted that, yes, without a doubt, we were doing this. But then it's taken almost another 30 years for them, or more than 30 years, for them to actually start to release all this material. And when I approached GCHQ and asked them, I said, look, why is it taking so long? And they said, well, we're starting to, you know, uh, release material on the operations, etc. And they said, now we're going to release it. Uh, part of it was they didn't want to release it all in one chunk because they were afraid this would draw attention to it. And so as a result, they wanted to release it in a very protracted and controlled way. Why? Why, why not draw attention to it? Well, they didn't really want to, I think, probably because they didn't want anybody sort of poking around into sort of the Machiavellian intent, if you will, behind these operations, the ruthless nature. In other words, what they were willing to go to to achieve these objectives, which in some cases, you know, really walk the fine line, you know, uh, uh, of war crimes. Um, sure, but not, we, not we, we, know, we know from history, I mean, that this was... You know, using humans as cannon fodder was uh, it was just standard operating procedure, certainly in the First World War. Well, it certainly was in World War II as well. I mean, when you think of you know all the men who have died taking a you know a, a hill in the middle of nowhere, or you know being lost in a bombing raid over Germany, um, you know certainly, and I. I I'm very hesitant to say that their lives were worth it at Dieppe or the deaths were worth it at Dieppe, but certainly given you know some of the other reasons why how you could lose your life uh, during war, certainly this one probably had you know more merit than others. Well, it does now, thanks to mm-hmm. you, David, because now uh, it is uh, instead of being associated with futility, uh, now it takes on this tremendous. You know, heroic effort. I mean, there's no question that regardless of why they were there, these men were heroes. But now the operation, um, it, it, it has context. It has purpose. And had it been successful, you know, it, was, mm. it would have saved hundreds of thousands of lives. It, it, changes, well. every, it changes everything, David. Well, it's funny because I'm really torn about that. You know, you, you, you take a look at this and you wonder why. You know, why did they need to go to this extreme? And somebody has asked me on many occasions, or I've been asked on many occasions, you know, was it worth it? And, you know, certainly there was an altruistic intent, and it certainly was worth it in that sense to pull off something like this. But I don't know if it necessarily was worth the cost at the end because, you know, surely there had to be a better method of pulling something like this off. How is the book now uh, being received by uh, by veterans? Um, the veterans are, are, to be honest with you, blown away by it. I mean, this is something that they didn't expect. And, and mind you, there are only a few of them left, um, you know, probably less than about maybe 50 to 100 now. I mean, we're 72 years after, 73 years after the event. So there are very few of them. But for the ones who have read it um, and seen the new evidence, I mean, they are profoundly changed. And that was something I had to, um, I really had to watch out for as a historian, because to be honest with you, this was the first time that I really was confronted with the power of history and the power of the truth. And uh, I tell you, after meeting some of the veterans, I made sure I went back and crossed my T's and dotted my I's on my uh, my research, because I realized just how powerful this was going to be. 
Uh, and do you ha- do you hope that there will be some perhaps uh, assurances that when going forward, a Dieppe is is taught in in the in the schools? And I quite frankly, I don't even know if it is, and that would be a, it would be a, mm. a colossal shame if it is not. But that that the 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 historical record will be now changed to reflect your your findings. Well, certainly, I hope that the you know the historical record will change to respect not just the findings but the evidence, and that's really the key. You know, there was a lot of new evidence that has come out, and it's caught, I think, the historical community off guard um, simply because it took so long to come out, and also too, it came out in such an overwhelming way. I never really expected that it was going to take so long, let alone 150,000 pages uh, to do it, and then you know, at the end of the day, come out with significantly new evidence that can completely changes our understanding of the operation is, um, you know, it's really moving at light speed when it comes to the historical community. Uh, So, you know, eventually it will get there. But I think it's right now it's kind of a culture shock, if you will. Sure. Would it be too much, do you think, to ask that uh, a a standing member uh, of the uh, Canadian, you know, Ministry of Defense, perhaps the cabinet minister responsible for defense might at one point stand up in the house and and address this issue put it on the record officially well it would be great yeah i mean i certainly have no issues with that um i just hope it's you know i hope it's done in the proper way david congratulations uh, it's Thank you. it's it's not only uh you know the the evidence and the investigation is is thorough but it's it's well written i mean it's a real page turner uh mm-hmm. and you know that's a real accomplishment obviously you, making history come to life uh is is always a difficult task and you've done it brilliantly well thank you David O'Keefe, One Day in August, The Untold Story Behind Canada's Tragedy at Dieppe. I think you owe it. Uh, we all owe it uh, to our ancestors, uh, perhaps even uh, loved ones, immediate uh, family members, to read this book and uh, understand what really happened at Dieppe. All right, when we come back, more interesting programming here on The Conspiracy Show. We'll uh, speak with a healer. And uh, we'll tell you a little bit more about what's coming up in future weeks on The Conspiracy Show. As always, the website is richardserrett.com. That's your portal to the program. And you can say hello on Twitter at Richard Serrett. Follow the truth. Thank you.